Uh, we're now going to hear from God's Word. If you'd like to follow in the Church Bibles, page 899. We're reading from Luke 16, and uh, I'll read through to verse 15, and then Todd will follow on from there. Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and was sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Keith. Let me pray. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for this time where we can sit and listen. Thank you, Father, when your word goes out, it does not return empty. And we expect this morning, Lord, your word to work in us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to spur us on. Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to be our teacher, to be our guide. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit and teach us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Knowing the future, it does change how we should live today, doesn't it? When you know something's going to happen in the future, it does change what you do today. Many years ago, it was a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, my godmother asked me to come and see her. She was a larger-than-life character, and she called me in, and at the moment I walked into the house, I knew something was wrong. And she sat me down, and she told me that she was dying. She told me she had six months to live. Now, she's probably the only Christian I knew growing up. How is she going to spend her last six months here on earth? It changed the way that she lived. She told me about Jesus. She told me she loved me. She imparted wisdom to me. She handed me her husband's Bible. Over the next six months, she met with family. She met with friends. She met with loved ones. That's what you do when you know your time is short. It changes the way that you spend your days. Now, if you knew that something was going to happen in two months' time, you would plan for it. If you knew the the Twin Towers were going to fall that day, you would not go to work that day. If you knew that the tsunami was going to hit, you wouldn't go to the beach that day. If you knew the bushfire was going to ravage your house, you would get your possessions and leave in time. So when you know something's going to happen, if you're told it's going to happen, it must change what you do today. 
Now, the problem is that you and I don't know the future, do we? I know that we act as though that we do. We plan as though we know what's going to happen, but we don't. There was a famous interview with a celebrity risk analyst. That's an exciting job, isn't it? Uh, he was very, very articulate. He, he told us the, the prime age to buy your first property, the, the best shares to invest in, the optimum age to retire, and it all sounded incredibly impressive until the interviewer asked him this question. Now, have you thought about what your future will be when you die? Have you thought about what your future will be when you die? And this man just sat there, sort of mouth open, in complete shock. But friends, that's the only thing that we do know is going to happen, isn't it? That's the only event, the only certain event that every human being in this room today knows is going to happen. We're all going to die. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. It's almost 30 years since my dad died. And 30 years later, there's only really two dates of the year I can really remember. His birthday and his death day. And that's true of people. You remember the day that you're born and you remember the day that you die. And every one of us here has got a day in the future. We don't know when, but we do know it's going to happen. We're going to take our last breath and we'll stand before our maker and give an account of, what, of the way that we've lived. And knowing that, knowing that one event called death, it's got to change the way that we live today. And I think that's the big idea of Luke chapter 16. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples in verse 1. He's not talking to the religious Pharisees. He's not correcting the crowd. He's talking to his followers, people who claim to love him. And the big point this morning is this, act shrewdly now in light of eternity. Act shrewdly now in light of your eternity. Live differently today knowing about heaven and hell. Let's look at this parable together. Verse one, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possession. So you've got this property tycoon who's He's hired a manager, property manager. But the problem is that this property manager is wasting his possessions. He's being dishonest. He's being slack. He's stealing. He's wasting money. In verse 2, when, the, when the, the rich man finds out about it, hears about it, he summers in the manager. Look at verse 2. He says, give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. That is the key verse. He now knows the future. This manager now knows the writing is on the wall and one day in the near future, he's going to be jobless, he's going to be fired and his life will look totally different. And knowing that fact, knowing that fact at some point in the future, he's going to be jobless and penniless, it just completely transforms the way he lives now. So verse 3, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm not a bit too embarrassed to beg. So he's got this window of opportunity, this short time to prepare for the future. So what does he do? 
This is the, the, the struggle with this parable. You could read this parable as he's got one last chance to swindle his boss out of more money. But the problem is in verse 8 where the master commends this manager. He says, good on you. Now, now Jesus cannot be commending dishonesty or manipulation or lying, but he is commending acting shrewdly now in light of your future, making a difference today because of eternity. And that's what this man does. He, he calls him all the debtors, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. So uh, one person in verse 5, he owes 900 gallons of olive oil. That's about five years' wages. And, and he wipes away half the debt. That is being kind and generous and making friends for yourself. Now, the next man in verse 7, he owes 1,000 bushels of wheat. That's a larger debt. That's, that's 15 years' salary. And he says, oh, we'll make it 800. Let's take three years' wages off. So what he's doing here, he's being wise, he's being prudent. He's saying, I'm going to be generous now, so I make friends for myself now, so I'm okay in the future. And Jesus has some surprising words in verse 8. He says, the people of this world, the people who don't know Christ, are more shrewd, are wiser in dealing with their own than are the people of light. He's saying, look at the people of the world. They plan and they invest as if they knew the future. But you Christians who do know the future, who should be different, often you're not shrewd and you're not wise. Often you just waste all your time and you waste all your money. When, when you know about heaven, you know about hell. Let's unpack this word eternity. You heard of uh, Mr. Eternity, Arthur Stouse? He met Jesus Christ uh, um, in one day in, I think it was 1930, 6th of August 1930. And that completely changed his life. Every day for the rest of his earthly life, he walked around the streets writing one word and the word was eternity. Because he was so convicted that eternity was real and heaven was real and hell was real, he just needed to live, live differently today. So let me ask you, do you know that hell is real and heaven is real? Are you persuaded of that? Are you convinced there's only two destinies? One is called heaven and one is called hell. Because when you know that, and when you're confident of that, it's got to change the way you spend your time and your talents and your money today. Heaven and hell are real. And that's the point of the second parable. That Jesus tells in verses 19 to 31. It's not a comfortable parable. It's pretty confronting. And what he's saying here is that you can have the, the largest mansion in the best suburb in, in Sydney with the fastest car and the finest food and he's in the best restaurants and have the best job and best education for your kids and all the stuff that this world throws at you but you can still go to hell. Verse 19, there's a rich man. 
He's phenomenally wealthy. He's dressed in purple. That's the, the color for a king. He wears the fine linen, the most fashionable clothes. He's a power dresser, and he lives in luxury. He eats like a king. He feasts on the fine food every day. He wants for nothing. And verse 20, that gate is not a little wooden fence. It's an it's a enormous ornamental gate of a stately home. So this man is filthy rich. He's got everything the world could offer him. But did you notice in his parable, we know nothing else about him? There's no mention of friends, there's no mention of family or personality. He's just rich, as though those earthly riches define him. But my fear is that we sit here and we think, well, that's okay. I'd love to be rich like him. We kind of look up to these people because they've made it, because they've got the best house and the best suburbs with the best cars. He is just rich, but he has no relationship with God. We meet a man in verse 20. He's the complete opposite. He's a beggar. When it says in verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar, it's literally was thrown a beggar. This, this, this man has been tossed like a piece of garbage and he lies in front of this gate day in, day out. He is the kind of guy, if you pass those guys on Pitt Street and they're sleeping in the shop window, the doorway of the shops, sitting in their own urine. That's the kind of guy you're supposed to imagine. He's got nothing. He has no clothes on his back, just these pust-filled sores. He's got nothing to eat. He just longs for a few bits of leftovers. And it's so gruesome and so dehumanizing that even the dogs come and lick his sores. So two different people. And on earth, the rich man has everything and the beggar has nothing. And on earth, the rich man throws away his food and the poor man scrounges for leftovers. And on earth, the rich man wears expensive clothes and the poor man has nothing but sores on his back. And on earth, they are so different. And my fear is that we look up to the rich man and we scoff at the beggar. But in eternity, it is so different, isn't it? They've got one thing in common. It's there in verse 22. They both die. That's the only thing they have in common. They both die. We often say that death is the great leveler, don't we? And that's nonsense. It's not. Death is the great divider. According to the Bible, death is a great divider because some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. And the beggar, he goes to heaven. Verse 22, the time came for the beggar to die and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. It's a a beautiful picture of, of promise, of prosperity, of feasting. He is there in glory. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more begging. He's just feasting. But look at the rich man. He also died and he was buried and his new postcode is called hell or Hades, the place of the dead, the place of torment. Verse 23, in Hades where he was in torment, 
He looked up and he saw Abraham far away by Lazarus by his side. And he begs and begs and begs for just a bit of relief from his pain and his anguish and his suffering. Can I just say, I do not like talking about hell. I really don't. I find it incredibly emotional to talk about hell. Mainly because the majority of my family have died without Christ. And that is a reality for me to, to grapple with. We should never enjoy talking about hell, but we must talk about it. Because the Bible talks about it, and Jesus talks about it, and it is a reality. Jesus is teaching us here that in both heaven and hell, we'll have physical bodies with tongues and there's fingers here. In both heaven and hell, we're in a conscious state. And in both heaven and hell, our emotions are intact, whether in bliss or in anguish, whether in pleasure or in pain. But the key thing is that both these places are fixed destinies. There is no crossing over allowed. There's no way out. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm, like the Grand Canyon, has been set in place. So you can't cross over from heaven to hell, and you can't cross from hell to heaven. See, when we die... That is it. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as this place where you can supposedly do your time for the wrong things you did on earth and cross over to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. It says when you die, you're either in heaven or you're in hell. When I was uh, 16 years old, I witnessed a event that was so gruesome, it's kind of etched in my memory. And words can't really describe how horrific it was. I could paint a picture of it, but I can't use words to describe it. And that's what Jesus does, you know. He, he uses images to describe the horrors of hell. Images like fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness. And he doesn't use those to exaggerate or to scare us. I think he uses images because words can't quite conjure up how horrific it is. So the fire for the presence of God to punish, the weeping and gnashing of teeth for anguish and torment and pain, and for the darkness, for the separation, it is awful. But when we know that's a future reality for some people, it must change how we live today. So how do we act shrewdly now? I think Jesus wants us to learn three points today. It's the gospel confidence, the gospel generosity, and the gospel urgency. The gospel, we need to be confident, to be certain, to be sure that heaven is your home and not hell. Let me ask, ask you, do you know where you're going? Do you know for certain where you're heading the day that you die? I want to be really clear here. that The rich man is not in hell because he was rich. Lots of rich people go to heaven, praise God for that, but they don't get to heaven because of their riches. They get to heaven because they've trusted in Christ. 
There's another important difference between these two men. One was known by God and one wasn't known by God. So on the surface, the rich man had everything, but he had no relationship with God. Now, how do we know he had no relationship with God? Well, what does the Bible say are the, are the two great commandments? Love God and love your neighbor, yeah? Let me ask you, did this rich man love his neighbor? Every day he drove past this man in need. Every day he saw this man who was suffering, but he did nothing about it. He did not love his neighbor. And the Bible says the way that you love your neighbor is really the visible proof whether you love God or not. There was nothing in this man's action which implied that he had a relationship with God. I think he is an example of verse 13. The man who loves money, the man whose, whose money is his master. This man lived for his wealth, but there was no spiritual health. And can I just say, friends, please don't be seduced by wealth. Please don't chase wealth because it will, it will quickly become your master and it will shape you and it will control you and it will define you but it is damaging to your spiritual health but this beggar he doesn't have much but this beggar had one thing that the rich man did not have and it's so simple it's so easy to miss did you spot it what does the beggar have that the rich man does not have. How do you know that, Graham? Yeah. Look at verse 20. Look at your Bibles, verse 20. What does the, what does the beggar have that the rich man does not have? Can anyone tell me? A name. It's so obvious, but we miss it. He's the only named person in all of Jesus' parables. He's got a name. His name means he whom God helps. He's named Lazarus, just like Jesus' friend who will be raised from the dead. And you ever thought about this, that that you only need a name if you've got a relationship. If, if, you, if you've got no friends and no relationships, you don't need a name. But you need a name if someone's going to call you something. And, and Lazarus has a name. He's loved by God. He's known by God. He's named by God. And that matters in terms of eternity. So let me ask you, have you got a name? Are you known by God? Has Jesus found you? Has he called you? Has he defined you? Has he saved you? Are you utterly persuaded and confident that you are known by God? And is that displayed by the way that you love other people? You've got to have that assurance and that confidence. It's not your riches that get you to heaven. It's being known by God and loved by God. And when you know that, it gives a gospel generosity. When you know that heaven is your home and you long to save people from hell, it just changes the way that you use your time, your talents, and your money. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about money. 
It says, don't let money define you. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's saying money is a good thing. Money is a great thing. Money can be a great blessing and a great tool, but it can become a crippling master. He's saying use your money wisely now to win people for eternity. I hope you know that your money can't get to heaven with you. But people can. I'll say that again, your money can't, get, can't come to heaven with you, but people can. And you and I have got a chance to win people for eternity by our generosity. That's verse 9. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcome into eternal dwellings. Use your, wisely, your worldly money now to win people for eternity. You ever thought about that? Wouldn't it be amazing if when you got to heaven, you looked around and you saw people who were there in glory have avoided hell because of your generosity, because you introduced Jesus to them. That's one of the reasons why Rachel and I sponsor four compassion children, one for each of our kids. Because by our generosity, these little ones get to hear about Jesus. We support... Bible society so that the Bible can be translated into different languages around the world so other people can hear about Jesus. We give our money to mission partners so they can talk about Jesus. We give our money to church so that other people can hear about Jesus. You want to give, 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 give so that other people can hear about Jesus. People will be, will be saved from hell because you and I give money so the gospel can go out. You can't take your money with you but you can take people with you, people who have heard about Jesus. It's really expensive living on a lone or shore, isn't it? It's really expensive. And sometimes, you know, you have to live in expensive houses to win the lost who live next door to you. And sometimes you need to spend lots of money to join a sporting club so you can, you can meet people to talk about Jesus. But that needs to be your motivation for where you live and the clubs that you join, to see people lost without Christ. Not so you can have the, the, the nice postcode with a nice house in a nice suburb, live your nice, comfortable lives, and have no heart for the lost. People are perishing in hell. And they need to hear about Jesus. And we get the chance to do that. And whatever money God has entrusted to you this morning, think about that. How are you going to use it so that other people hear the best news in the world? Have you heard about a guy called John Wesley? He could have been filthy rich, you know. And he chose not to. He worked out very early on that he could live quite comfortably on £28 a year. It's a long time ago. First year he earned 30 pounds, so he kept 28 and gave away two. The third year he earned 60 pounds, so he kept 28 and gave away 32. And when he had 100 pounds, he kept 28 and gave away 72. And he worked out the standard of living that he was very comfortable with, and he gave all the rest away for gospel causes. 
And I can say with confidence there'll be thousands and thousands and thousands of people in glory, in heaven, because of his wise choices to use his money for the sake of the gospel. Souls lost, souls saved from hell because of his generosity. I want to urge you, just be wise and shrewd with whatever God has given you, thinking about heaven and thinking about hell. It's a massive generalization, I know, but most of us here, most of us are incredibly wealthy. We really are. So would you think today how you can use what God has blessed you with to make the gospel go out? And that's where the urgency comes in. Waking up every day, we're thinking it could be today. I could die today. Or Jesus could come back today. So who can I tell today about Jesus? That's where the five brothers come in in verses 27 and 28. See, the rich man in hell, he longs. He is desperate for his family to hear the good news about Jesus. He said, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. And I think we're supposed to put ourselves in that point. We have our family, we have our friends, we have our neighbours who do not yet know about Jesus. Let him warn them. I plead with you. Can you go and tell them about Jesus so that they won't come here to hell? So the rich man wants to send a kind of a Christmas carol type ghost to warn his brothers, to call them to repent. He wants them to understand the reality of eternity. And Abraham says, verse 29, well, they've got Moses, they've got the prophets, they've got the scriptures. The scriptures themselves that, that teach that God is loving and gracious and compassionate, and the scriptures that warn us about hell. And the rich man says, no, no, they, they won't bother to read the Bible. If someone could just prove that heaven and hell are real, verse 30, if someone from the dead, if someone were to come back from life and go to see them, then they'd repent. Verse 31, no, 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 no. They won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And do you get the irony there? Jesus himself rose from the dead and yet people still don't believe. I was personally very, very confronted this week by how much I feel like I have lost my gospel urgency. Oh, I still talk to you about Jesus all the time. But I look back on, on the Paul Dale of 29 years ago as a brand new Christian, and I was just so keen for everybody to hear about Jesus. And yet, okay, I was too pushy. I, I acknowledge that but at least I cared. At least when I met somebody, I wanted to share my faith with them. You know, it strikes me that you have people around for dinner and you never talk about Jesus. I spoke to my mum on the phone this week and she's not a Christian. I didn't talk about Jesus. I, I've got my five people I'm praying for and yes, I am praying for them, but I have not been as bold as I could have been in inviting and talking about Jesus. And I just wonder whether the Christian life has been so comfortable and I've just lost the urgency of heaven and hell because when you've grasped that, it puts fire in your belly 
because she longed for people to hear the best news in the world, which is that God loves them, God has forgiven them, and God wants to take them to glory. You and I have a window of opportunity. There'll be people in your life right here, right now, that you need to talk to about Jesus. And today is a good day to do it, isn't it? Because you don't know when they're going to die. And you don't know when you're going to die. But you do know heaven is real. You know hell is real. So can I plead with you and beg you to make the most of every opportunity? Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your amazing sacrificial love for us, that that you would die for us, that you would call us your precious children. We thank you, Lord, that we are confident and certain of heaven, not because of who we are or because of our riches and our wealth, but because of, of what you have done for us. Father, we do stand amazed at that, at your amazing grace. Yet, Father, we do know people who we love dearly, who at this moment in time are not known by you, are not heading to heaven. I'll give you space now just to call out their name in the quiet of your heart to God himself, pleading with him that he would open their eyes to Christ. Father, help us to be bold in conversations. Help us to be generous with our money, to take every opportunity, to take every second we have to proclaim Christ to these people, to make Christ known. Father, we long for heaven to be filled with people who have heard the gospel because of our generosity. And we ask that for Jesus' sake.